Well, we are beginning the uh, book of Malachi, <laughs> the book of Malachi. And uh, as we begin, there are some handouts that are being made available to you. Uh, these are for your um, convenience as we go through what will be six or seven weeks of this minor prophet. It'll be a place for you to doodle as well um, and to uh, take some copious notes. We've tried to give you um, a little bit of uh, a primer of what's ahead um, in terms of this uh, table, which is adopted from the ESV Study Bible, and also um, just kind of uh, some guideposts for us as we look at the historical context of this little book. I want to tell you, first of all, why, uh, we're, why it is that we wanted to look at this book. Uh, Pastor John graciously um, offered me the opportunity to, to preach from God's Word and uh, gave me some free reign in terms of, of where to go. And so I'll tell you four reasons why um, I feel like this is a good place for us as a body of believers to be studying. First of all, um, this book is easier than the book of Leviticus. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's shorter and easier, um, easier study, easier application. Second of all, this book is, um, is sarcastic. Um, the fact that it's sarcastic for me resonates, but it also cuts to the heart of mankind, and it reveals the heart of God. Those things are both very raw in this. It doesn't leave much ambiguity in terms of God's character and what God expects of his people. That's very clear. So that's the second reason. The third reason is that this particular minor prophet is directed um, in part to the priesthood. And uh, for the women who are beginning to dig into First Peter, you'll know that us as a redeemed new covenant people are referred to as a royal priesthood. And so how appropriate that we understand how it is that God communicates his expectations to the priesthood. Specifically, the priesthood, um, as we'll see contextually at the time of Malachi, it's a priesthood that have come back out of exile. Their temple had been destroyed. It's now been rebuilt as Temple 2.0, not quite as uh, impressive as before, and very much lacking a tangible manifestation of God's presence. And so for that reason, the priesthood went about their duties in a lax way, with which God was very displeased. And so he's chastening them as the priesthood. And that's appropriate for us. We, as that royal priesthood, often need a very swift, divine kick in the pants. The fourth reason that I picked this particular uh, book and that it resonates with me is that it stands very much as, as a crossroads between the Old Covenant and the new covenant. I picture uh, a sign, I don't know if you've seen them around, uh, there's one that comes to mind that I've seen in Key West that has a sign that says, Cuba's this way, and you know, Washington, D.C. is this way. And so if you picture that crossroad, the book of Malachi stands very much pointing back at the covenants with Abraham, with Moses, and with Aaron, and it points to the new covenant with Christ. And so it stands at a crossroad, and as, as we all know, this stands right before 400 years of divine silence, during which God does not speak with his people in the pronounced prophetic way that he has done in the past. So those are quick reasons as to why I think that this book will be one that God will use to speak to us, and I pray that he will do so in a, in a powerful way. That said, the title of the series is A Call to Covenant. God reminds uh, his people of the covenants that he's made with them, of their failure to keep those covenants, and points forward to the new covenant made through his son Jesus Christ. See if I can figure out the clicker here. So one of the ways in which this book is unique and the way it is structured is uh, you'll see that there are six different uh, charges 
accusations, disputations. This table is uh, borrowed from the ESV study Bible, so if any of you have the ESV study Bible, you'll see that this table is presented there. And essentially, the book is very easily outlined for us. And so, roughly speaking, over six weeks, we'll look at each of those different charges, those different disputations, if you will, that God has with his people. God uses his rhetorical questions to prompt the, the priesthood, to prompt the people of Israel to check their hearts. But for today, I'm going to ask you to flip over to the back side of the page, and you'll see a couple of different dates on there. And I left the dates blank because I'm going to offer you guys the opportunity to doodle. Okay, So the best, doodle, the best drawn timeline will win some sort of a prize after the end of the, the series here. Um, first of all, setting context. Malachi means God's messenger. We don't know if that's an exact proper name or if that's just a title that's used to refer to this particular prophet, but Malachi means God's messenger. Verse 1 of Malachi chapter 1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And just this little statement is loaded with meaning, with content. First of all, oracle as it means, um, generally comes to, to, with the idea of a burden. It's a weight. The message that Malachi is giving is a bit of a burden to him. This is not good news. We've all had the opportunity to deliver good news, and it's fun. We've also all had the opportunity to give bad news, and it's not. This news is a burden, is a challenge for Malachi to deliver. And it's also really interesting that he says, to Israel by Malachi. Just the the use of the term Israel is very loaded based on the timing of what's going on. So let's look at what's going on at this time. 586 BC. For some of you, you might recall that a couple years back we studied Babylon and all it is, the biblical theology of Babylon. And 586 is a very significant year for the people of Israel. Jerusalem finally fell it had been foretold from the days of Isaiah and, and on through Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah's day, he sees the temple destroyed and he sees Jerusalem fall. And so 586, the last of, of Jerusalem are taken into captivity. And it seems as a nail is in the coffin, so to speak, for the people of Israel. So you can doodle there, 586, the destruction of a temple. Use your own imagination. Crayons are not provided. You have to bring your own. Then we have, in 570 B.C., a little parenthesis for the book of Obadiah. Pastor John says I'm only allowed to briefly mention Obadiah because he's going to be preaching it soon. So, <laughs> so uh, Obadiah ties in here, and we'll, we'll talk about why. But uh, the book of Obadiah is a message to Edom, to the descendants of Esau. So we have um, Malachi, who is a, a, a directed to the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, Right? And just parenthetically, to give us some context, in 570, the book of Obadiah, the, the message uh, from Obadiah to the Edomites is delivered. Um, I don't know what you want to draw for 570. Uh, you can draw um, a little scroll of Obadiah, um, a hairy guy like Esau, whatever comes to your mind. In um, 553 BC, we see the, the culmination of all that God promised in 570 the Edomites fall. The Edomites are, are destroyed because of their own pride and God's divine judgment. The picture that you see there is uh, Petra in Jordan, which is uh, thought to be the area where the Edomites dwelt high in their lofty cliff dwellings, and God brings them down from there. So that 553 is significant in what's going on. 
We'll see why uh, in the first couple verses of Malachi. Then we have 538 BC. This is a fascinating and important date because we see the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah coming to fruition as God delivers his covenant people back out of Babylon, going back to their homeland. The, the king of the Persians, Cyrus, makes this decree and allows the people of Israel to go back to their homeland. Other pl- peoples were also freed to go back to their places of origin, and that's um, of v- great significance. In fact, uh, Jennifer and I stopped at a place of business yesterday in Los Angeles, and uh, in the office that we were in, above the doorframe, it appeared to be um, Hebrew and Arabic writing together. And of course, um, in my ignorance, uh, the gentleman explained to me that it wasn't Arabic, but rather it was Farsi. And what he had displayed was the Ten Commandments. And he explained that it was there in those two languages because he was a Persian Jew. And I find that fascinating that you can go to Los Angeles today in 2019 and people will identify themselves as a Persian Jew, right? So when we see this decree of, of Cyrus, many of the Jewish people had the opportunity to go back to, to the province of Judah, which we'll look at in just a minute, but yet some of those um, people from national Israel remained behind in Persia. And even today we see the effects of that. But this decree is extremely significant and used by God to fulfill some of his promises to his people. That said... We know that Ezra and Nehemiah and the people of Israel began to leave out of Babylon, out of Persia, and go back to their homeland. And that's precisely where we find ourselves. In 516 BC, this is an approximate date, right? We see the temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. This temple was rebuilt um, with the, the consent of the Persians. The people of Judah went to great lengths to rebuild this temple, and As I mentioned, this temple didn't measure up to what they had before. It fell short. This is significant. Then we find ourselves contextually here in 460 BC, roughly the time that the message, the oracle, the burden of Malachi is delivered to the people of God. So that gives us a little bit of a story of what's going on, right? We've seen them go through some very difficult times as a nation, Jerusalem fell. They were taken into captivity. They're brought back out of captivity. They're given the opportunity to redwell in their land. But not all is well. But not all is well. I'm not sure how you're doing with doodling, but you have the chance to fill all these in. Keep that context in mind because it'll help us understand where we are in this historical redemptive narrative. Let's go together to Malachi chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, from verse 1 through verse 5 today, and you'll see that that kind of follows along with this first disputation, this first charge that God brings against his people. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. 
If Edom says, we are shattered, but we shall rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the, the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So returning back um, to, uh, to verse 1, we see the word of the Lord to Israel. This is a bit of irony in the midst of things. Uh, when Cyrus issued his decree and allowed people go, to go back to their homeland, this was not an affirmation of his love for the people of Israel. This was not a way of validating the faith of the Jewish people. This was actually a change in policy to allow the Persian Empire to continue to flourish and to go through and overcome certain challenges. In a sense, this is Cyrus offering inclusion and diversity. He's doing what we see often uh, today in saying, hey, look, the Persian Empire is one that accepts all religions and accepts all faith, and thereby he's earning favor with his constituents. Now, allowing them to go back, of course, we know that Nehemiah was allowed to go back and take from the forests, and he was allowed to take uh, resources of that empire to rebuild the walls and to rebuild Jerusalem, but it wasn't a free lunch. It was an opportunity to reestablish a province with people that perhaps would have some financial prosperity so that they can, in turn, pay their taxes and their tributes back to the Persian Empire. This was a matter of foreign policy more than it was uh, benevolence. So the people of Israel, like others, were allowed to go back to their, their little province. And uh, it's interesting for me to come back to California after some time away and sort of look at this huge place with such population and such prosperity and all of these things. But there are a few different aspects of this that help me kind of identify and contextualize what's going on. First of all, uh, my two oldest sons were born in San Diego County. So um, I think it's kind of neat. For, for me, it feels a little bit like home, but my kids essentially have grown up in Latin America. So they have had all these things that they've heard about life in California, but they don't necessarily understand it just yet, right? And so for these people in the time of Malachi, they were born in captivity, many of them. They had heard about the homeland and how great it was. Now they're there and they're like, this is not like granddad's stories. This is not what I thought I was getting myself into. The other bit of the analogy that I think is, is helpful for us to understand is that the King Cyrus and, and his set of uh, governors established different provinces. And so what they've established now is the province of Judah. If we were to try to put this in our own context, right, we've got the great state of California and we've got the county of San Diego. Well, the state of California has ceased to exist, but these people are allowed to come back from exile and dwell in San Diego County, right? But now what we see here in, in, in this passage is that God isn't referring to them as the people of the province of Judah, but he's referring to them by their larger national identity as Israel. The bit of irony in what he's saying there. They've been partially restored, but not restored to the greatness that once was. And they're aware of this. And part of that has allowed them to have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. One of the things that I have really been blessed by and have not understood from God's word in any other teaching, but that Pastor John has helped me understand really well, is this concept of the already and the not yet. That's beautiful because that is our reality. 
And that is the reality of these people in the province of Judah. The already and the not yet. They're waiting for this great restoration and their restoration isn't happening. Not yet. That's where the signpost points ahead. Not to the old covenant, but to the new one. Israel. Verses 2 through 5 begin this first disputation. Let's look at it again. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? The rhetorical questions are great. For those of us who have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, we know that this question mark, it is a spiritual gift. It's just, you have to look at the right translation. (laughs) Um, this, This sarcasm is the way in which God is speaking to his people and making something very evident. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how? The, the first application that I would give for us as we look at this book together is be careful when we make comparisons to others. As human beings, we're naturally inclined to compare ourselves to others. The people of Israel at this point are comparing themselves and they're saying, man, God does not love us. God does not love us. And they're, they're making this comparison and I have a... Uh, I have a, um, a brother in Honduras, and I've mentioned him before, who came out of uh, the life of gangs. And upon exiting the gang, he had a number of people that have sought his life. So he doesn't get on a bus or go through a part of town without kind of looking over his shoulder. And so every time the guy prays, he thanks God for another day of life because he's not comparing his life to others who have more than him. He's comparing his life to, well, I could be dead, <laughs> right? And I think there's something to be said about that comparison with what's going on here. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? The reality of of what we see here is that Israel was spared at all, right? It wasn't as good as they thought it would be, and it wasn't as good as they had it before, but it was a lot better than what they deserved, which was to be completely eliminated from the face of the earth. They can be completely wiped out from human history. That's what they deserved. Their comparison is, hey, how come we're not doing as well as this nation or that nation? But the valid comparison is, what do they deserve, right? The Lord says, but you say, how have you loved us? And God continues to answer this in the form of a question. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So God gives the people of Israel a little bit of a comparison, right? They may have been comparing themselves to the Persians, who had great wealth and great power, and all they are is this puny little county, right? God says, how about we do a different comparison? Why don't we compare you with your brother Jacob, or your brother Esau? Let's do that as a comparison. And he puts this perspective in place. And oftentimes that needs to have happen for us as believers. We'll see a certain group of people with whom we compare ourselves and we can quickly fall into a pity party. And God says, let's compare you with an unbeliever for just a bit. <laughs> That's heavy. That's why it's an oracle. That's why it's a burden. He's, that is heavy. Let's do a comparison. Let's compare with your brother Esau, with the Edomites. Now, you guys are a unique and gifted group of believers. Um, I don't have to come up here and use this text and defend the 
uh, doctrine of sovereign election with you, right? Um, I have a number of friends with whom I would approach this text and we would come up to and they'd be, that's not fair, God, God picks favorites. What do you mean, like the sovereign election thing, right? So I'm not gonna delve into the, the sovereign election with the, with the depth at which it, des- it deserves, quite frankly, but I wanna look at this in terms of the simple comparison between those whom God has chosen to save and those whom he has chosen not to save. And so we have Jacob and Esau as a perfect example. Let's go back to, um, to Genesis chapter 25 and look at this choice, if you will, between Jacob and Esau. What's the distinction that we see from early on? So we have the the text before us, and we have the birth of Jacob and Esau in verse 19 of chapter 25. And we know that in verse 22 and on, we see that there are two nations within the womb. It says, verse 23, And the Lord said to Rebekah, said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older should serve the younger. We have Jacob, and we have Esau. Without going into the, in the entirety of the text, we all know that in the ancient Near East, the birthright went to the firstborn. Who was the firstborn of the two? Esau. Right? So by all logic, by all human standards, the one that should have had this special place of blessing was Esau. But we know the story. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob stole this blessing from his brother, and thereby Isaac bestowed upon him an enduring blessing. Was that blessing because he deserved it? No, he was a deceiver. He stole it from his brother. And so that's really important for us to understand as we come to this chastening in Malachi chapter 1. He said, Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. For us as believers, it's often easy for us to make this comparison with unbelievers and think, I'm really special. God chose me, right? But did he choose us because of our own merits? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not only is that that sovereign election evident there, right? But there is also... The, the fact that God is going to give multiple opportunities. Go with me now, if you will, to the book of Obadiah. The book of Obadiah, which we're all enthusiastically looking forward to, to hearing of in, in, in great depth, is a unique book that God uses to give a prophetic message to the descendants of Esau. The descendants of Esau, that nation from Rebekah's womb, are the Edomites. And they have made a great mistake. Now, from the beginning, it was said that um, Esau would serve Jacob and that Esau would live by the sword. But when Esau begs his father for a blessing, the best his father can give him is that someday the yoke of Jacob will grow weary and you'll throw off that yoke and you'll rise up against your brother. 
And sure enough, that's what happens, right? As the, the forces of the Babylonians are coming around and taking people off into conquest, the Babylonians show up on the doorstep right outside the Edomites, and the Edomites are like, you know what? You don't really want to attack us. What you want to do is go right on by. We'll let you pass. You have a free pass. And you can go get Jacob. You can go get Israel. And they were complicit in the destruction of Israel, And so because of that, being complicit in that destruction and betraying their brother, God has a particular beef with the Edomites. In uh, Obadiah chapter 1, actually there's only one chapter. Good luck finding chapter 2. He says this, The vision of Obadiah, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, and let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your hearts has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. If thieves came to you, if plunders by night, how could you have been destroyed? For they not steal, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. Your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. And then we're going to skip to the end of uh, chapter 1. And uh, verse 17 says, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. This proclamation against Edom has a finality to it that the prophecies against Israel do not have. So as we're doing this comparison, it's important for us to understand that one comes with it an opportunity to repent and be restored, and one doesn't. Um, Allow me to just comment briefly on Obadiah, the picture of Petra and this high lofty place. What the Edomites had going for them was a military advantage, and they used that, and ironically their their downfall, if you look um, in this text, it talks about the pride of their hearts deceiving them and, the, and being cleft in the rocks. Ultimately, what the people of Edom did is they invited their enemies to come into their camp. There was no way to defeat them from without, but they were defeated from within. They allowed the enemies to come in and, and defeat them, and they were ultimately driven from their place. In fact, what we see is that the people of Edom lost their nation, and they would later inhabit a very small province called Idumea. And Idumea was like the county next door to Judah, right? And they had it far worse off than the people of Judah did. But in Malachi 1, what we see is the Edomites are starting to to gain a little bit of traction in the neighboring county. 
And so the people of Israel are, are, are wanting to compare themselves to those around them. And God says, they might say they're going to rebuild, but they're not going to because I am faithful to my word. Have some consolation that this neighboring uh, gathering of Edomites isn't going to go much further. At the end of the book of Hebrews, there is a statement about Esau's not being given the opportunity to repent. I believe it's Hebrews 12. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. I believe it's verse 21. The author of Hebrews is making some, some statements, and he makes one that's very intriguing about Esau not being given the opportunity to repent. My wife graciously lent me her Bible, but it doesn't have all my underlining, so give me just a second here. Uh, verse... 17, thank you. Verse 16, that, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And going back to Malachi 1, as we are prone to make this comparison with us and others, it's incredibly important to see that God granted in his grace, in his favor, the opportunity for Jacob to repent, an opportunity that Esau did not have. I love the verse in Isaiah where it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Draw near to him. Repent while there is still an opportunity. And for those of us who are redeemed people, we have been given the chance to repent. And God, in his mercy and his grace, has given us, has empowered us to do that act of repentance. So the difference between Jacob and Esau, one was given a chance to repent and one wasn't. Praise God that in his sovereignty, he has given us that opportunity to repent. That's the comparison that we ought to make. There's um, a lot in this comparison thing that really speaks to, to my heart. We need to understand that we are chosen by God, not because of our favor, and that in his choosing, what he's given us is the opportunity to repent. Don't forget what chosen means. Don't forget what that means. That doesn't mean we're better. That means that we're recipients of God's grace. The um, verse number five of this disputation is one that is incredibly important. And one thing that I would like to ask you guys to um, assist me with as we go through this teaching, this book, is to ensure that every week what we look at points to Christ. Um, I'm really blessed the church has helped me go a couple of different years to Shepherd's Conference. And the first year I went, the simple theme was beautiful, is we preach Christ. We preach Christ. I love that. And, and what it has instilled in me is that no matter what text we're looking at, it all points to Christ. It all points to Christ. And if it doesn't, we're falling short. I happen to have an affinity towards uh, the Old Testament. Yesterday, we went up to um, uh, Master's College to visit Joshua, and we went into the school bookstore there, which um, has the collection of uh, John MacArthur commentaries. And the commentary section only had the New Testament. 
what's up with this? There's no Old Testament commentaries here. He's like, you have to special order those. So I have this love in my heart for, for Old Testament, and I tend to, to gravitate that way. I love seeing the richness of God's redemptive history. But we'll have not done justice if we don't conclude every week with how does this point to the new covenant? Learning from the past is great, but how does it point to Christ? And verse 5 is this subtle but glorious pointing ahead. He says, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Okay, their border isn't so great. Keep in mind, we're now talking about a little county that pays taxes to a government that it serves, that they have been um, given some table scraps of what they had before, right? Their border isn't so great. But yet, God is saying, my name will be praised far outside of this little county. Everyone will know. Everyone will praise and uh, one of the things that I, I uh, have been reflecting on and I, and I love is that God saves his people for our good and his glory, but not in that order. But not in that order. God is saving this little pe- group of people, not because they're great, not just because he loves them, but because he's interested in his namesake. He's interested in making a name for himself. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel would have likely been uh, a near contemporary of Malachi. And the prophet Ezekiel has some things to say about the behavior of the people of Israel and the reason for which God saves them. And I think for for me, this is the, the biggest application that I would wish to instill upon you this morning. Verse 43 of Ezekiel 20 says, And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. And you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. God deals with us graciously for our good, but primarily for his glory. So when he banishes the, the Edomites and says, you will never rebuild, but he gives Israel a chance to build Temple 2.0 and gives them a chance to repent after many chances to repent, he's showing his favor. And that is so true of us. He has granted us life today. He has granted us the opportunity to, present, to, to repent. And he has done that to show his glory in our, in our lives for that purpose. When we recognize that this is pointing to a time in the future where the name of God is to be great beyond the borders of Israel. We're talking about not just the geographical place, but we're also talking about showing his favor to more than just those who are the descendants of Jacob. I learned something interesting in uh, this commentary, which I highly recommend to you. This is an ESV commentary. Um, uh, John MacArthur as Johnny Mac, as uh, Joshua, my son, refers to him now. Johnny Mac. John MacArthur doesn't have a, a, a series on Malachi specifically that I could find. So I found this really great commentary. I highly recommend it. It's an ESV expository commentary of Daniel through Malachi. And there's some great comments about the, the book of Obadiah and some interesting things that happened historically. Around the first century B.C. in Idumea, the little province um, next door to Judah, the 
conquerors at the time didn't quite know what to do with that particular province, and they said, well, let's just merge it with Judah, right? We do find in the book of Mark that Idumea uh, continues to exist around the time of Christ, but essentially they didn't quite know what to do with these people. They're like, well, the Edomites kind of look like the people of Israel, maybe a little hairier, but um, they essentially forced them to become one group again. They were politically treated in the same way, and in fact, one of the conquerors would force some of the Edomites to become circumcised and treat them as if they were descendants of Jacob. How interesting. So the people of Edom nationally ceased to exist and were brought back in to the people of Judah, the people of Israel. But all of this, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel, isn't pointing just to the ultimate annihilation of, of Edom and showing God's vindication for his people who were betrayed by their brother, but ultimately it's fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. And your, your homework for this week is to um, celebrate what Christ has done for us as you read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Those chapters all shed great light on what we see in this text. We see Paul making the comparison between Jacob and Israel. Of course, the account that we all know is in Romans chapter 9, where he compares Jacob and Esau and this, this idea, this doctrine of sovereign election. But more than that, he goes through and he says, through those opportunities of repentance that were given and forfeited by Israel, we have now been given a chance to come to mercy. That is the gospel. And now the word of God is proclaimed far and wide around the globe. I'm going to close with this, um, this uh, account. Our eldest son just got back from a trip overseas. He was traveling through an airport, and he was in China, and was unable to pay for his meal. His credit card wouldn't work. And so he's standing there trying to figure out how to pay for his meal, and a guy behind him says, I pay, in his best English. And Joshua turns around and says, well, I don't know what to say. You don't have to do that. He says, I pay. And then the guy pays for his McDonald's meal and offers Joshua to come and sit with him and says, come sit. The guy's Russian. I don't know if you could tell by my accent. He was, <clears throat> he, he was not Chinese. <clears throat> but this Russian proceeds to take out his, his phone and present to Joshua a digital tract in Russian and in English and present the gospel of Jesus Christ to Joshua in an airport says, I wanted to buy you this meal because I happen to run into you here in China because I am a Christian. How amazing is that? Great is the name of the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. We are now part of a global faith, a faith of those who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. If the people in the little province of Judah would have understood that, this wouldn't have been such a burden for them to read, but rather a joy. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your grace and for the favor that you have shown upon us, not because we deserve it. Like Jacob, we have offended, we have deceived, we have wronged, but you and your favor, Lord God, have offered us the opportunity to repent. God, thank you that you have given us life today and an opportunity to again repent to you and turn to you, to again turn our eyes to the cross and celebrate what you have done for us. Lord Jesus, we just pray that as we explore um, your word this morning, as we draw near to you in worship, Lord God, that the reality of the gift that you have given us would overwhelm us with gratitude. 
May we not take that for granted. May we not compare ourselves to others and say, why do the wicked prosper? May we instead compare ourselves to what we would be undone, without life, dead, whitewashed bones. But God, you are gracious, and we thank you and we praise you for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.